So if you'd like to open up your Bibles, I'll be preaching on the text from Romans 1, verses 18 to 25. Last week, we focused on uh, verses 16 and 17, an incredible, powerful summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where by faith we're counted righteous, we're saved. And so, really, really important lead-in to today. Uh, The sermon series is, what is the state of your soul? We want to know the state of our soul. We want to know how we stand before God, right? And uh, you know, if you were watching uh, last week or here last week or maybe saw it on video, you'll remember that I opened with just the reality that um, we're living in a tough time. We're living in a, in a difficult time. We're living in a time with lots of discord and controversy, and uh, it seems our culture is just spiraling downward almost at supersonic pace. So people are hungry for answers about the state of their soul. This last year, I think, brought all kinds of pressures, health threats, economic threats, uh, just the reality of getting through the day. And uh, when when that happens, I think pressure just brings people back to the reality of being made in God's image. We can think like animals can. (laughs) Why am I here? Why am I here? Who or what made me? What will happen to me when I physically die? And I want to just emphatically say, just as I did last week, the Bible gives us those answers. The Bible gives us those answers. The Bible is God's inspired word to us. And what it does is it gives us a reality of the state of our soul, which is a binary proposition. Uh, Pastor Jeff has been preaching on some of this out of Matthew. But the Bible basically says, you're either one thing or another. You're either one thing or another. It's an either or. There's no ambiguity. So it tells us we're either saved by God or we're lost. Our soul is either right with God by faith or our soul is literally warring against God. We're either at peace with Him or we're separated from Him. We're either counted righteous in His sight or we're due His holy wrath. And He has holy wrath. We're going to talk about that. We're either graced with eternal life in fellowship in heaven with him, which is how it was intended all along, or like Satan and the demons, we're headed for never-ending punishment. We're either considered a royal family member of the king or we're an enemy of the crown. There's different ways to say this, but the Bible is clear. It is binary. And last week, we also affirmed that God alone in his sovereignty, in his authority in his power. He alone determines where we are on one side or the other of the binary equation. We have a a gift offering of grace to say yes by faith and be counted righteous and saved. The alternative is unbelief. Unbelief. And we're going to talk about that today. Salvation comes by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Hold on to that as we go into a difficult text today. So I want to say also before we go into difficult text that God desires that all people be saved. He does. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 to 6, if you want to flip there, it says this, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, 
who desires all people to be saved. That's the heart of God. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, who is the testimony given at the proper time. God desires all to be saved. That's his heart. So how do people come to faith? Well, faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing, Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing and from hearing through the word of Christ, which is given to us in holy inspired scripture. And so what I'm doing is preaching the truth this morning, God willing, Lord willing. And 2 Timothy 4, 2 says it's fitting and right that we do this, but I'm not the only preacher in this congregation. You're all preachers when it comes down to it. Our job is to tell people about Christ. 2 Timothy 4.2, we are to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why am I spending all this time leading in? Because we're going to look, we're going to look at some tough passages today. We're going to look at something out of Romans that is hard. I'm going to say some hard things. We're following Paul from last week to the dark and sad side of the binary equation. We're going to look at the absence of faith or unbelief. God considers unbelief cosmic treason. He considers it cosmic treason against his sovereign lordship over the universe, a universe that he alone created and he alone sustains. So we need to look at what cosmic treason is. We need to look at what thinking, behaving, and as an enemy of God look like. Nathan said that. Our last song was talking about that, being a friend of Jesus or being an enemy of the holy God of Scripture, an enemy of the Trinity. We need to know what that looks like. And, And please make no mistake, if you do not have saving faith in Jesus Christ alone, you are on the wrong side of the binary equation. We need to be bold about that. We need to be bold about that that because people's eternity depends on it. There are heartbreaking things going on in our culture right now. We need to have the, the love of Christ as we talk to people. We're not mad at anybody. The enemy is not other fellow human beings. The enemy is Satan and lies are pervasive in our culture. We need to be able to speak the truth boldly in love to them. Let's look at our text, Romans 1, 18 to 25. A long passage here, but let me just read it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. 
Amen. There is a lot there in that passage. There's a lot there. It's heavy. It's hard. It's hard words, but it's truth. I marvel at the relevancy of this passage of Scripture. It's almost as if Paul wrote it last week. What I want to show you out of this is there are four distinct marks of unbelief. Four marks. And here they are. The first is unbelief reveals God's wrath. The second, unbelievers suppress the truth. The third, unbelievers desire idols. And then mark number four, unbelief ultimately perverts humanity itself. As we go through these marks, I hope you'll see and understand why things are the way they are in our culture, why the arguments and philosophies of this world seem so ridiculous if you've spent any time at all in God's Word. And they really are ridiculous. We're going to talk about that. It's also a good check against our own spiritual health. We want to, we want to just confirm that our, our salvation is real. We don't want to be on the wrong side of the binary equation. We don't want to be attracting God's wrath. So let's open up with uh, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Stop there. Here we have Mark 1. Unbelief reveals God's wrath. God's wrath. People don't want to talk about this. It's, it's just, it offends people's sensibilities in our modern culture. We don't want to talk about a, a big God who can hold us accountable and judge us and is capable of punishing and capable of destruction and payment for our sins when we're not saved by grace. People want safe spaces. They don't want accountability anymore. And there seems like we're in a time where we are just full throttle going towards selfish desires and pleasure all the time. We don't want to talk about being held accountable, but this is the Spirit's message in God's Word. The Spirit of God gave this to Paul. He wrote it down. It went to the Romans, and it's come to us. It's inspired Scripture. God's wrath is revealed in unbelief and against ungodliness and unrighteousness. We need to see that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. There's just no ambiguity here. The God of inspired Scripture is a God of wrath. Some translations um, use the word anger. But hear this. His wrath is unique to him. Unique to him. His wrath is holy and set apart. It's unlike any other. It's unlike human wrath. Human wrath is a gross distortion of getting angry because it's always associated with some form of sin. So it's important that we understand what holy wrath is. R.C. Sproul uh, helped me immensely with this, and I'm going to give you three ways from R.C. that uh, God's wrath differs from human's wrath. First, our Trinitarian God's wrath is not arbitrary or capricious or uncontrolled anger. The God of Scripture, the Holy Trinity, just does not pop off in a meeting. God doesn't descend into road rage. You know, it's not fist-throwing anger at a sports event. It's not out of control. I saw a video the other day on the news where people were just having a riot, just punching each other in the back of an airplane. (laughs) Heaven forbid. That is going on in our culture more and more. The airlines are really worried about it. No, that's not what we're talking about here. There are really two basic words in the Greek language that talk about expressing anger. The first is thumos. That's where we get our word thermometer or thermos from. This is red-hot anger, the kind that um, overcomes people when they just 
lose it and punch somebody in the nose. We've seen a lot of that over masking, not masking, all kinds of stuff. That anger is impulsive and passionate. That's not the word Paul used in the text. He used the word orge, which is a, it, it signifies a settled and abiding condition. Orge describes a just and therefore proportionate response to offense. It's controlled. It's holy. It's set apart. So the wrath of God isn't human wrath, which is always sin distorted. The wrath of God is is unstained by any hint of sin. It's flawless, settled, controlled, consistent with the perfect unity and harmony of the Trinity. We think about God's attributes. We have to always think about God's attributes to keep him the high God that he is in our minds. He's eternal. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's he's holy. He's righteous. He's merciful. He's loving. He's sovereign. He's also a God of wrath. We need to hear that. Second, from R.C., God's wrath is, is explained to be in parallel with his righteousness. If you were here last week, we saw that. Verse 17 says the righteousness of God is revealed. And in the opening of verse 18, we see the wrath of God is revealed. Well, what Paul's doing is using a literary technique here called parallel, parallelism. And it's to show that the wrath of God revealed in unbelief is actually the mirror opposite of the righteousness of God revealed in saving faith. Important to see that. What this does, we see the binary reality of the state of men's souls here before God comes to the fore because, because God, because Paul is emphatically stating that if faith is counted as righteousness, unbelief attracts holy wrath. We have to see that. It's one or the other. The last one from RC is God's wrath is specific in its direction and target. It's not willy-nilly. His wrath is justly directed against what? What does the Scripture say? It says, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So no matter what Hollywood depicts God as, which is 99.999% of the time completely wrong, or even what our government officials are saying these days or what the culture would say, wherever you sit, the wrath of God is not a deity it's, it's not portraying someone flying off the handle, being indiscriminate and thumping people just because he's God, and we're not. His wrath is in keeping with all of his character, and it's in harmony with the beauty of the Trinity. It's perfect, and it's pure. There's no threat to the innocent. There's no threat to believers who are counted righteous by Christ's perfect sacrifice at the cross of Calvary. Please keep that in mind. So as Paul continues in the coming verses, we're going to see that he gets very specific as to the why the ungodly and unrighteous are subject to or under God's wrath. And in doing so, we're going to see that he gives us a bit of an anatomy of unbelief. And I think as we go through it, you're just going to see, wow, that just tracks with everything I see in the culture. All right, so let's look at verses 19 and 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness... Suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. Stop there. That verse, kind of completed, gives us the second mark of unbelief. Unbelievers suppress the truth. This is the first very specific reason we're given. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by unrighteousness suppress the truth. This suppression is, is not passive. 
the idea of suppressing something just carries an active sense to it. It's like holding it down. You know, one, one sort of illustration would be, uh, I like this one because I, I had little boys. They're big men now. But a uh, little boy smuggling a puppy into his bedroom. I could see one of mine doing this. You know, and kind of stuffing it in the toy box, and then when mom and dad come in, it's sitting on the toy box, and the puppy's trying to get out. I mean, that's sort of suppressing the truth. The truth can't be held down. I've given the example of, uh, you know, we used to have a pool in our backyard when I grew up in Florida, and we, we used to take beach ball and try to shove it all the way down to the bottom. It was really hard. And, uh, you know, that thing was just trying to get out, and up it would go. And that's what the truth is like. It takes a lot of work to suppress the truth, does it not? And we see the painful just twists and turns of logic when people are trying to explain things in our culture now. Racism, sex between man and woman, holy matrimony, everything is just anything apart from what God would say is perfect and true and right the way he created it. We have tortured analysis and all kinds of painful explanations to get to suppressing the truth. Do we not? People do that. They do that. It's continual and it's aggressive. But Paul says, if you're not saved, you are continuing the process of holding down God's truth, and so therefore you're subject to his holy wrath. There aren't any exceptions. Whether you're in the jungles of, you know, wherever, in the Pacific, or you're in the inner city, or you're in a quiet suburban neighborhood, you're in Juneau, you're in Fairbanks, you're in Anchorage, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not saved, if you're not on the right side of the, bo- uh, the binary equation, you are suppressing the truth. That's what Paul is saying. And suppressing the truth is not in any way cultural. It's not any way connected to race and ethnicity, wealth, or lack thereof. It's unbelief. It's unbelief is the root of suppressing the truth. And what do unbelievers suppress? Well, verses 19 and 20 go on to tell us, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What people hold down with such great effort is the basic knowledge of the power of God as creator and sustainer. They have to work at going outside and looking at a star-filled sky in a place called Seward, like I was able to do yesterday, and not be amazed by that, not be overwhelmed by the power of God. It takes work to do that. There is just this giant elephant in the room, so to say. That's what Paul is telling us. It's plain. It's obvious. Look around. I have a grandson now. He just turned one. He's walking. They put him in this little weird bear suit, and he was walking around our campground. I just was marveling at that. I'm like, that is incredible, and only God could do that. It's plain. It takes work to say that all that is random. Our text is clear. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, they have been clearly perceivable and always have been. We just have to look around. But here's the rub. When we hold God high like we should, we have to see that we're lowly like we are. And that's where people get into trouble. They're so in love with themselves that they can't let go and see a high God and a low self. That's the problem. 
So Paul's describing that to us, and it was the same 2,000 years ago as it is now. There's really only two responses to walking outside and looking at our mountains and looking at nature and seeing a moose with calves. We're either utterly humbled by that, and we see the great gulf between God and us, or we seek to close that gulf with lies, lies about God and lies about men. We make God small. We make ourselves bigger. But the testimony of creation is just crystal clear. It is to me. I've been around, you know, 60-plus years now. I'll be 64 in August. And, uh, you know, for you young ones out there, I've been around a while. I've seen some things, been around the world. The more I live this life, the more I'm amazed at God's power and the more I'm amazed at this truth. Please hear that. That's my testimony. Genesis 131 described the Lord's pleasure before the fall. He said, says in verse 31 of Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made and it was what? Very good. Very good. God is very good. His creation is very good. The vastness and precision of our cosmos just declares out loud all day long the necessity of a magnificent God. It is foolish and ridiculous to think that random, impersonable, unintelligent, unintentional processes are responsible for all of us sitting here this morning with families and friends and jobs and careers. Think about that. But we see people suppressing this truth with a lot of effort everywhere all the time. You know, one, one that's always gotten to me, I'll just share this with you, is just the absurdity of explaining the universe by saying it just was here and it took billions and billions and billions and billions of years to get to how it is complex and beautiful and majestic like it is today. Just time. Time solved it all. There is no intelligent designer creating and sustaining matter and life. Just No, it's just the passing of time. Well, how do you explain how matter got here in the first place is one problem. And then the other problem is... The second law of thermodynamics, where everything is kind of falling apart and unraveling, not building into more beautiful order. We teach that here at Grace Christian School, and the kids go, yeah, I see it. Makes sense to me. It's plain. It's really hard to, to put God out of the equation of how we got here. It takes effort, but we do that. If you don't believe in the second law of thermodynamics, where everything is moving to disorder, not order, just don't paint your house for 30 or 40 years in Alaska, and you'll see what happens. It's, it's true. Things don't organize absent an incredibly sophisticated God who's in control of everything. Things are moving to entropy is the uh, term there. Suppressing the truth takes work. It takes work. Johann Kepler, father of modern astronomy, he, he originated the term satellite. He said this, the undevout astronomer is mad. It's plain before us. It's plain before us. But people in their rebellion, in their selfishness, in their arrogance, they want to place their faith everywhere but in the loving God. We all are faithful about something. We believe in something. It takes faith to believe there is no God. It takes a lot of faith to believe there is no God. It takes faith to believe in things that are lies. Everything has a component of faith. I would much rather read this and go by faith that God has given me. That's an easy leap for me. That's not across the Grand Canyon leap. I think believing in evolution is across 
the Grand Canyon Leap. So verse 19 tells us what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The word plain just means obvious. It means manifest. And so Paul in verse 20 says what? They are without excuse because it's obvious. It's obvious. So if Mark 1 is uh, unbelief, is holy wrath revealed, Mark 2 is suppressing the truth, and I hope you'll agree with me, we see evidence of people writ large suppressing the truth. That's why we have a Christian school here. We're refuting the lies of the culture, and we're doing it every single day. We're doing it in church. We're doing it through all of our ministries. We're speaking the truth in love. Well, Mark number three is unbelievers desire idols. This is the progression. This is the progression. Wrath is revealed, suppressing the truth, and then chasing after idols. Mark number three. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we see in the very opening of that verse, it tells us how perversion and and idolatry initially come about. We know better. They knew better. People know better. For although they knew God, they did not honor him. That means that the slide to idolatry begins with knowing the truth. God's written his truth on our hearts. We know this, but then we make choices. We make choices. All because they, they, people understand things, but they choose not to honor God, and they even make themselves gods. And I've said it this way as I've taught the Romans class, idolaters really just want a better deal than what God offers in Scripture. They, they want better than who God is for some, some reason. They refuse to worship God for who He is, and rather they reduce Him down to a lower level. They take a high view of God and they move him down and they move men up and they replace the real God, the true God, the capital G God with a little G God or gods. And we fashion gods of our own choosing. And that minimizes this vast chasm between creature and creator. You should see that. Progressively generating idolatry is what Paul is describing here. Verse 21, their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened. So the lower you go, the more unclear you become. That's a, that's a reality of Scripture. So not only is moral judgment darkened, intellect and reasoning power suffers also. Do you see that? We have the truth of Scripture. We have, in our salvation, we're filled with the Spirit. The Spirit enlightens us to the truth of Scripture. We can read God's Word and we go, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Unbelievers... Are, have, have a, a darkened way of looking at things. And the deeper they go into their sin, the more their intellect and reasoning power suffers. It's a downward spiral. And so eventually, you just are, are incapable of seeing the magnificence of God as it's revealed, obviously, to us. Did you know that in our culture now, ABC News reported on this, there's, there's a uh, massive agenda being pushed on, on gender, and supposedly now there are 58, 58 gender options to choose from. 
58, that's a lot. It takes work to come up with that many. And supposedly Facebook is feverishly trying to capture all of them so you can be on Facebook and choose which one you are. But folks, this breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to look at my grandson and know that somebody's going to try to tell him maybe you're not a boy. When he is a boy through and through, he's destroying our campground. <laughs> Folks, God's design of genders is perfect. Male and female is perfect. It's perfect. It's also binary. You're either one or the other. And God's design for marriage is perfect. It's perfect. Two become one flesh and a holy God-ordained union for the purpose of bringing blessed children into this world. And then the building block of everything, to begin with, the church, is the family, mom, dad, and kids. Now, I know we have um, families that aren't a mom and a dad, and that's, in, in God's will, things happen. But I'm saying God's original design is what we need to pay attention to, because that's what Paul's talking about. It's plain before us. And God's purposes for the family are, per- are perfect. Foolish hearts are darkened is what Paul is telling us, and I think we can see that. The tragedy of idolatry is that it just falls infinitely short of giving people any idea of what God is really like. It's always the aim of Satan, right? It's like if we're headed to the Kenai Peninsula or headed down to Seward, Satan wants to put blinders over us so we can't see the majesty all around us. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's plain to see, and we should know that. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. The root word for fools is the same from word that we derive the word moron. It's kind of an ugly term, but it really is addressing a person's moral condition, not so much their intellect. What Paul is saying is becoming a fool is a downward spiraling effect. First, you worship an image of man. Second, you worship birds. Then you worship quadrupeds, and then ultimately reptiles. You just can't get any lower than that. Do you see the descending nature of all this? It is a pattern. First, man suppresses the truth about the greatness of God, and then he perverts it by worshiping, insulting images. In essence, the true knowledge of God is now out of our grasp, and man worships images in which he is most comfortable, little g's, gods that suit him. And then the ungodly man worships himself. And we have to be careful about that. We must always keep a high, high, high view of God and a correspondingly low view of ourselves. So we have Mark 1, wrath revealed. We have Mark 2, suppressing the truth. We have Mark 3, desiring idols. Let's look now at Mark 4, which is the perversion of of the self, perversion of humanity itself, the very perversion of human life itself. Look at verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The progression is just clear. First, the suppression of the majestic revelation of God, then a perversion to man-centered idolatry, and then finally, a perversion of man 
himself of humanity, a perversion of humanity. R.C. Sproul said it this way, in the end, their humanism or man-centeredness resulted in the dehumanization of each other. What, this verse, what these verses are telling us is unbelief in the descending nature of it. Man actually lowers himself to a condition far below God's purposes in creating us in his image. It's special to be created in God's image. Humans are the only one who have that description assigned to them in Holy Scripture. Created in God's image. God has important purposes for humanity. It's a very dignified place to be, but sin descend us, descends us out of that place, right? And we end up going far below, far below. His good purposes for creating human beings, you and me, in his image. Man, having rejected the witness of God in creation, goes on to live, listen, contrary to the very order of creation. We start to go opposite of the very reason we're here. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Flip over there for a second. This is the glorious trinity. This is God speaking about making man in his image. It says, starting in verse 26, Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's amazing. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Well, the contrast between the beauty of Genesis 1 and the tragedy of Romans 1 verses 24 and 25 is just profound. It's profound. And we see the fall evident, and we also see something very key in God's expression of holy and pure, la- pure wrath. Look at the beginning of verse 24. Therefore, this is a key, therefore God gave them up. God gave them up. That's a terrifying phrase. It's, a t- it's terrifying to me. God gave them up. It's repeated three times before the chapter closes. God giving you up. That's the painful reality of his wrath. Another term for this is judicial abandonment, where the God the judge abandons people to their own sin. So abandonment is actually an expression of his perfect and holy wrath. The idea is when you do church discipline, you put somebody out of the church so they can... They, you know, and treat them like an unbeliever so they can see the gravity of their sin and hopefully that will just shake them into running back to God. That's the idea here. Being turned over to your own sin. And we know that uh, this, is, this is an important expression of God's wrath. We know that he has other expressions. In the end, as it says in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, Everything is going to be burned. It's going to be, that, that'll be the ultimate expression of his, his wrath before he creates a new heaven and a new earth. But he does avenge himself in expressing his perfect wrath in differing ways, and one very clear, biblically defensive way is being turned over, given over to your sin, abandoning someone to their sin. Do we see this today? Do, do we see this in, in people today who are unbelievers? 
My sense is um, there's a lot of anger out there. People are just mad. And they're really mad at God in the end. They're mad at God. We all get sort of targeted because in the believing church, we represent God's truth, and that upsets people. But this idea of of being abandoned, there's a a sense of being lost as well. And uh, we have individuals and really aggressive corporate groups that are angry. I'll call one out today because it just breaks my heart. It's LGBTQ and uh, the other letters that continue to be added to it. It is chasing things that aren't true, that are directly counter in the truth of God's word. It breaks my heart and it should break your heart. But God's wrath in the form of judicial abandonment is happening there, I believe. Happening there. And we should be paying attention to that. And our response to this you know, as much as it's upsetting when things come our way and it just don't make sense to us because, you know, by the power of the Spirit, we're grasping onto truth and we're believing truth and we see lies for what they are. As much as it upsets us, we should have broken hearts for people who are lost and people who are lost in this particular sin. LGBTQ and all the other stuff with it, The Bible says it's sin, and we need to say and agree with what the Bible says and call it sin. But it's just like any other sin. All of us are sinners. What we need to do is have the mind and heart of Christ and love people in the kingdom by being bold enough to stand firm and say we believe in what God says about this issue. There's so much intimidation out there. There's canceling. There's silencing. Praise God, because we live in America, we're not silent this morning. I'm not silent this morning. I don't want you to be silent when you go out from here. We want to speak the truth in love because we love people. We're no different than anyone caught in any sin, except that God gave us saving faith, and we said yes to that saving faith, and we now believe, and we're humbly, just humbly grateful. I didn't do anything. So let me go out and talk to that person in Starbucks who's celebrating Pride Month. Let's just be bold. They need help. They need the gospel. And we need to be strong in that. There's one really, really important thing I want to show you about this idea of being abandoned because it's really at the heart of the gospel. If you remember in verse 17, we talked about the righteousness of God being revealed from faith for faith, the righteous shall live by faith. And in verse 18, we saw the parallelism, the wrath of God revealed from heaven And we read that verse. So what these two verses is affirming the binary nature of the state of our souls, but it's also giving us a very unique insight into God's wrath meted out to Christ on the cross. Just as the righteousness of God was best and beautifully revealed in Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, so too was pure, holy wrath of God revealed in an incredible act of justice. Justice served, and Jesus did it. For a moment, for a moment only, he suffered separation, abandonment. He suffered judicial abandonment. In Jewish thinking, to be cursed was to be cut off. It was the worst thing that could happen to you, separation from God. It was and is the worst thing that could happen to a soul, separation from God. Jesus had never known anything but face-to-face fellowship with the Father, 
beautiful harmony, unbroken unity, Father, Son, and Spirit, all working together all the time, perfect. Together they created the universe. We know that. They were and are each other's immeasurable delight, ongoing all the time. But now, as Jesus, in his role as second member of the Trinity, voluntarily went to the cross on our behalf, he became a curse. Galatians three thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is any, everyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians three thirteen. Something incredibly profound happened at the moment of Christ's physical death on the cross. At that moment of separation, it wasn't the pain of the nails, it wasn't the flayed back, it wasn't the inability to breathe. It was so agonizing for Jesus, it was the separation from the Father, the broken moment in the Trinity. In that one moment, in all eternity, the fellowship of the Trinity, for our, on our behalf, that fellowship was broken and Jesus cried out. Jesus cried out, as it says in Psalm 22.1 and in the Gospels, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the God who loves us and saved us and that we need to tell others about. We need to tell our neighbors about. We need to be in their living room and we need to say, I love you. I don't agree with your lifestyle. I don't agree with your choices. I think 58 genders is a lie. We have the truth, and we need to tell them the truth, and we need to speak the truth in love. The wrath of God against our sin was expressed when Jesus Christ suffered alone, utterly alone for our sins. I should give you goosebumps when I say this. In this justice and mercy intersecting of the cross, intersection of the cross, we have the gospel, we have salvation. Christ's suffering on our behalf is why Christians must never view the lost as the enemy. People who are out there who don't agree with us, and you can call it blue states, you can call it higher education, you can call all the different arguments out there that run counter to the truth we have here, which is plain to us. They're not the enemy. They're not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. The lies of this world are the enemy, and we need to be brave soldiers in this world going out and spreading the gospel. That's really the point I want you to get from these verses. It's a terrible thing when somebody is suffering judicial abandonment. So we have to view the lost as our mission field, our mission field, even as God is giving these lost ones over to their sin. So one other thing about being given up, and I've hit on this some already, but uh, verse 24 gives us some clarity about one of the major things God gives people over to, and it's impurity. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among them. Akatharsia is the Greek word for impurity, and it's just a general term for uncleanness, um, the contents of a grave is associated with that kind of uncleanness, decaying matter. And then we know about the Jews and their ceremonial uncleanness. That is the term Paul is using here. And he does it because this is, this is where Satan has the most traction. 
He takes the most beautiful gift that God has given people, the gift of physical union in marriage to, for the purpose of having kids, and distorts it in every way possible. I've said it this way in my Romans class, you know, because I'm a warrior and I learn about weaponry, you know, sort of the F-22 of Satan. <laughs> He's taken the, the most incredible, powerful war machine and turned it into a weapon against us. That's, that's the way I want you to think about the perversions of sex. The effect of men's rebelliousness, self-willed impurity, was that their bodies might de- be dishonored. When men seek to glorify their own ways and satisfy their bodies through shameful indulgences, we'll get more into this next week, instead, their souls and their bodies are dishonored. They're dishonored. When man seeks to elevate himself for his own purposes, he inevitably does the opposite. The way of fallen mankind is always, always downward, never up, upward. One writer said it this way as we get ready to finish. No society in history has given more attention to caring for the body than the modern Western world. Yet no society has caused more degradation of the body. The more human life is exalted for its own sake, the more it is debased. The more it is debased and it's just tragically ironic. The same society that glorifies the body really has no regard for the body as it was made in the image of God. The same society that exalts man incessantly degrades him. Do you see that? Do you see how degrading these arguments are when they come outside the context of what is perfectly designed? Because they reject the God who made them and would redeem them, as it says in Ecclesiastes 9.3, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. That's a pretty good explanation of what I see. Do you see that? Do you see that? Let me wrap up with something Jesus said in John 3.36. We need to kind of see the dark side of this and then we need to be lifted back up. Whatever, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It is binary. Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So as you think about this, these eight verses and uh, just the hard reality of what I preached on, think about the two revelations the binary nature of things, the revelation of the wrath of God justly coming upon all mankind because man suppresses the truth, perverts the truth, and perverts life, or the alternative is the revelation of the righteousness of God from faith for faith. It's a righteousness that he gives us. We can't produce it ourselves. We just graciously accept the gifts, and then we can stand righteous before him, and then we can be bold and speak the truth in love. And boldness is not arrogance. Boldness is humility. Boldness is meekness like Jesus. Jesus was meek, but he wasn't a wimp. He was strong. He's God, powerful, speaking the truth in love. We need to be able to just boil it down to that. Love people. I pray for you that... um, You're on the right side of the binary equation. If you're not, let's talk. 
Hopefully this is stirring your heart. We don't want anyone under God's wrath, but we know it's real. We want to cling to the righteousness of God that's been revealed to us by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words of Paul. They're hard words. They're challenging words. We see people all around us. We have family members who are trapped in lies and sins, who are pursuing worldly ideas about how things should be that are counter to what Scripture gives us. Thank you that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, sufficient for all things. Lord, that we can hang on to it like in the incredible anchor that it is. Help us have saving faith and just know that as all these ideas assault us, we have what we need. We just need to find it and, and just team together, Lord, and be out in the culture, preaching and teaching the truth in love. May this campus be a gospel outpost in Anchorage. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.